America prepares to go to the polls, but does the average voter think about anything other than the US economy? Also, what makes a terrorist? A new book attempts to dispel the myths. And the last permanent British military hospital closes in Cyprus. It's looked after our people extremely well, but the construct of a, a cottage hospital within the, the military medical network is just no longer viable. Hello, I'm James Hurst in for Kate Chabot. Now, this time next week, we should know who the next president of the United States will be. Americans will vote in their presidential election on Tuesday. Barack Obama and Mitt Romney currently neck and neck in the polls. But in the home straight to the big day, what actually will make up voters' minds? And is there any sign that the final debate on foreign affairs might have swung the fight. Well, I'm joined by Professor Michael Stathis, who is Professor of International Relations and Political Science at the University of Southern Utah, and, of course, as always, BFBS Defence Analyst Christopher Lee. Uh, Professor Stathis, do Americans care about their country's place in the world stage when it comes to voting for America's Commander-in-Chief? I think they care, but... uh uh, as I think everybody in the world uh, fully expects, the, uh, it, it, it is the economy again. And economic issues, uh, unemployment, um, these things have been uh, at the forefront of the American mind. And this week, uh, those things, of course, have been further compounded by events on the East Coast with the hurricane and, uh, well, the, the major storms. So foreign policy has dropped significantly on, uh, on the list. Of the uh, three major uh, uh, debates between um, Governor Romney and President Obama, uh, the third that dealt with foreign policy uh, had the lowest ratings of, uh, of all of the debates. And, of course, it was uh, up against a big night of sports on the, on the US TV shows, <laughs> was. wasn't it? I mean, if Mitt Romney becomes president in January, is he, would he be walking actually into a foreign policy straitjacket? Would, would he change foreign policy or perhaps just change diplomatic tone? Oh, I think there are going to be significant changes. Um, there, uh, he has already made clear on several very sensitive questions that uh, there will be uh, a fundamental change uh, in what we have seen the, the last four years, particularly concerning uh, Iran, uh, Israel, um, and uh, uh, quite possibly uh, certain other questions concerning Afghanistan as well. Uh, Christopher, you've been looking at some of the polling on this th- this week about what, how much it, it plays on American voters' minds. What's, what's it suggesting? If you look at the stuff that the Pew Research Centre, and I think put it in context of people who don't know about Pew, Pews are very reputable. It's like Mori, it's like Gallup, mm-hmm. in those senses, of uh, political polling. It says that the American, and this is from a European point of view, the American electorate is far more aware of foreign policy and foreign policy decisions that we actually believe. We just think, you know, it's the economy stupid, as, as Michael says. There's another side of it. Um, they look at what's been happening in the Arab Spring, for example, and they say... That hasn't done anything, has it? Hasn't certainly hasn't done anything for America. It hasn't done anything for her, her allies. More importantly, the report says it. The American view is it hasn't actually done anything for the people in the Arab, the Arab Spring, and so it may be a game pew uh, extrapolates from its stuff and says, now listen, um, perhaps we don't have to go for the big democracy thing. Maybe it is possible that if you want people to have stability, if you don't have stability, you have war. 
maybe democracy should not be really high on the list, some form of benign dictatorship or, or whatever. Um, and after all, Barak and, and co, that the Americans, the British and everybody else has supported for a long time, would have described himself as exactly that. Uh, Michael, say this, uh, I, I wonder if you replace foreign policy with the phrase homeland security for a lot of Americans, it suddenly does become a game changer. It, uh, it does become uh, a different question. And, uh, I mean, but is that an oversimplification to, to make those no, interchangeable? No. Uh, this, this is a country that still very much lives in the shadow of, uh, of 9-11, and uh, it uh, affects uh, uh, perception uh, concerning foreign policy very, very greatly. Um, I, I see this day-to-day -day with my students that uh, they have an interest in foreign policy, but uh, it comes back to national security. What is in it for us? Um, how is it going to affect us? Um, uh, most of my students, in looking at the Arab Spring, uh, the primary concern is, is this going to lead to a situation where there will be more terrorism? Uh, or will it lead to a situation that will control um, uh, you know some of the things that lead to to terror, terrorism coming out of this uh, that is out of this area. Uh, so there is uh, there is very much a focus that uh, that comes from this, and I think you see that in Mitt Romney. Um, now his message on the Arab Spring has been kind of mixed uh, over the last uh, uh, two years. Uh, there have been there were times when he was very skeptical about uh, losing uh, former allies. Um, uh, such as uh, Mubarak in Egypt. Uh, and uh, more lately, of course, he has uh, reflected uh, something more akin to, oh, what we would have called the old neocon uh, approach to foreign policy, which was using American power to forward uh, ideas such as American uh, ideas of democracy and freedom and, uh, and that kind of thing. And I think that is something you're going to see if he is elected. You will see some of that old Bush crowd uh, uh, making decisions or affecting decisions concerning foreign policy. And uh, because of that, there will be a significant change. Michael, just a thought. I mean, locked away in Cedar City um, <laughs> <laughs> and far away from what's been going on in the past few days with, uh, with, with a, a change in the weather. Mm. Um, would it be true that most Americans or a lot of the people who are going to elect are not all Americans go to the polls to elect. Uh, would it be true that they've already made up? They made up their mind some weeks ago, and nothing that's happened in these past few days is going to change that. That has been one of the major uh, political discussions in this country for the last uh, month or so, uh, and there is a very strong school of thought that uh, uh, takes the opinion that the majority of American people made their minds up quite a while ago. But people who think they. But people who think they've made their mind up can have events intervene, as we've seen with Hurricane Sandy, for example. Possibly, possibly, but uh, um, I, I don't think so. I think the people who have made up their mind have made up their mind. I agree with that, uh, with that group of commentators. The people who are on the fence are this uh, uh, kind of mysterious, undecided group of uh, people who are neither Republican nor Democrat. They shift every four years, and it's not clear which way they're going to lean. Uh, and that group especially, I think, can be moved uh, by a major event like uh, what's happening on the East Coast or uh, this Friday, tomorrow morning, we will have the latest jobs report. That could have a, a last-second uh, uh, impact. 
uh, or some new new development on uh, the global level uh, uh, could uh, could move them at the at, at the last minute. But um, we are we're running out of time. Um, uh, those people, I think, are going to make their decision uh, coming up uh, fairly soon, and we're not sure exactly how it's going to swing, but. I would bet there would be more influence from uh, the storm and from uh, economic issues than foreign policy this uh, uh, in the next five days. Michael Sathis and uh, Christopher Lee, stay with us as we look in more detail at one of the big foreign policy questions for whoever wins that election. Because this week, an Iranian naval task force docked in Sudan. Its arrival just six days after explosions destroyed an arms factory in the Sudanese capital, Khartoum. Now, Sudan's complaint to the UN that Israel bombed the factory, which is believed to be operated by Iran. Israel's Defence Minister, meanwhile, Ehud Barak, has been speaking about Iran's nuclear ambitions. He's told the Daily Telegraph he thinks Iran has pulled back from the brink of its confrontation with the West, but perhaps only for now. Something echoed yesterday by the Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu at a news conference in France with President Hollande. The sanctions are taking a bite out of Iran's economy. But as I said to you, unfortunately, to date, they have not stopped the Iranian program. Uh, it's something that I think is of common concern to Israel and to France, to the United States, to Europe, uh, to just about every one of the Arab countries in the Middle East, uh, and to everyone who wants to see a safe and secure world. That is not commensurate with the Ayatollahs having atomic bombs. Christopher, we've had a, a mix of words and actions this week. Can we take any comprehensive message from them? Yeah. Um, let's, let's, let's take the first part, and that is that the uh, Iranians sent part of their navy, and it's not a big navy, uh, uh, but part of their navy, down to the Sudan. They are in support of the Sudan, and what's happening down there with that great sort of confrontation that's going on there. The Israelis had bombed and um, or have said it said that the Israelis bombed this factory. It's not just an arms uh, factory, it's arms dumps, etc. So mm-hmm. that's that part of it. In the meantime, the Royal Navy, the British Navy, have got people in the Gulf, as well as an exercise that's going on in the, in the Mediterranean anyway. But they've got people in the Gulf on permanent deployment there. They have done for years. But most importantly, they've got their um, MCMVs, mine countermeasures uh, uh, vessels. The latest thing, and I hear this from uh, Jerusalem, is that they believe that the Iranians are putting together a plan to cause a problem. And causing a problem means, for example, what the intelligence people call tanker bang, which they've been talking about it for four years now. But they think it'll happen. Uh, the Iranians will actually explode a tanker, a fully laden tanker. Imagine the consequences of all that. Uh, it will get to the islands. They'll set up explosions in the islands. The MCVs are there to stop mining, etc. Et so the whole thing builds up. In the meantime... What is still happening is that the sanctions which have been against Iran, there are signs of the sanctions are not certainly working, but the Iranians are getting a bit twitchy about it, and there have been statements. Their economy is really suffering, isn't it? The economy is suffering, but then economies do suffer in in these circumstances. And all they have said, and I saw the head of the, or the director general of the International Atomic Energy Agency last week, and he said to me, now listen, what is happening here is that the Iranians are going to start making just one-line statements saying perhaps if you released a little bit of the sanctions, we could actually be easier uh, on, on, on our progress in nuclear development. Will they? Uh, 
I wouldn't like to be the new, next president of the United States who has to decide whether they will or not. Yeah, Professor Stathis, I mean, it, the, it, whoever wins this election is going to be seen as the key power broker in, in, in getting this solved. How much room for manoeuvre have they got? Uh, in terms of public opinion, um, I think that they have a, a good deal of, uh, of room. Um, it, the, whether there's going to be a difference in policy is unclear. Uh, uh, Mitt Romney at one point, of course, was very critical of the Obama administration for not uh, taking harder measures or threatening um, uh, very, very stern measures uh, against Iran, but uh, backed off of that significantly in the foreign policy debate uh, uh, last week. So what Mitt Romney is actually planning to do with Iran is a little unclear, but I think you can suspect that uh, uh, he would probably uh, uh, hope to take a uh, what a more adventuresome uh, uh, role in this. Uh, whereas, if Obama uh, retains the presidency, I think you're going to see uh, a continuation of the sanctions that have been in place. With but but does it that, briefly? Uh, does it come back to personality-driven approach? Uh, you know, doing the same thing, but perhaps in a more or less hard-headed way. Well, I think it will be a fundamental difference because, as I said, the people who are going to be advising uh, Mitt Romney, many of them were part of the uh, the old Bush administration, uh, the so-called neocons. And uh, they, of course, have been uh, very, very critical of not taking very, very strong measures against, uh, against Iran. Okay, uh, well, so I, I think there might be a shift. Professor Stathis, we will have to leave it there. This time next week, we should know who is in the White House. No doubt we will discuss this again. Professor Michael Stathis, thank you. Still to come, the last British military hospital has closed after 50 years' service in Cyprus. And should the graves of Victoria Cross recipients be preserved by the nation? For 11 years now, British troops have been fighting in Afghanistan. The reason they're still there, according to the current government, is to continue to help protect Britain from terrorist attack. It was, after all, a terrorist attack on the US that started it all. But a new book seeks to find another weapon against terrorism by understanding and demystifying the terrorist. It is called Terrorist Creed, Fanatical Violence and the Need for Human Meaning. Its author, Roger Griffin, joins us from Oxford. Hello to you. This book, well over 200 pages. Can you sum up for us in a few sentences what you think are the core motivations behind terrorists? Well, the book actually looks at two different areas which have been neglected by uh, traditional terrorist research, of which there is a huge tsunami since since, uh, 9-11, of course. And one is the idea of the sacred, the sacred nature of a cause that the terrorist thinks he or she is fighting for. If you go right back to the very first terrorists, the Sikari, well, the first well-documented ones in first century Judea, when they were fighting the Roman occupation, um, they were fighting for what they considered to be a, a sacred homeland, uh, p- part of their religious destiny, etc., etc. Now, I trace that right through to right up through McVeigh and people like Breivik, all of whom, even though they're not part of a formal religion, uh, find a cause, create a cause in their head, which, if it's it's their their race or their nation or whatever, takes on the significance of of a sacred cause, which is more important uh, than their own lives in many cases, and certainly lifts the taboo against killing. So that's the one first area of the book. So it looks at the the creed. That, that's the creed in the title. And the second thing I do on the back of that is to find or investigate a particular syndrome or pattern of psychology, if you like, that goes on in in every terrorist um, 
situation, which is the the fact that uh, a terrorist, before he or she is a terrorist, is, a, if you like, a normal human being who respects taboos about killing and death like anybody else. But they enter a very sp- particular state of mind, which, which I find particularly fascinating and, and uh, a key to a lot of uh, apparently irrational behaviour. Because you go from a state of, of feeling impotent and, and, or, or confused or distressed about the world to a, a, a phenomenon called splitting. You split the world in your head into good and bad. It's called Manichaeanization, but we don't have to worry about that. And in that m- mindset, you feel you're part of a sort of cosmic battle between good and bad, and you are part of the good, and you have a mission to strike against a target which is symbolic of, of evil. So you've sort of demonized part of the world, and that part and of the world is a category of person or, or religion or, or, or enemy. And in your, in your book you say you, you want to make the terrorists to be more comprehensible, less alien, and themselves less demonized but but the trouble is understanding uh why that person becomes becomes a terrorist doesn't doesn't actually get necessarily deliver any way to to stopping it happening well put it this way if if the u.s this is a bold claim i'm going to make now but if the u.s intelligence services had spent more time understanding uh islamism as a as a creed as a as a world view uh, they might have, and for example, if we go back to the 20th century, if more people within uh, the military and the politics had actually studied Nazism, I'm not saying Nazism is terrorist, but it's an extreme state of mind, uh, if, if in history de- liberal democratic regimes had devoted more resources to understanding, if in big inverted commas, the enemy, I think that there would have been a lot of very strategic moments where policy would have changed. Um, and I think if you're trying to... Uh, be part of a counter-terrorist agency uh, to actually have a a model of how people operate and why they're doing these things does actually have practical implications. Christopher, it's it's, it's an old rule. Have we forgotten it in 21st century society? Know your enemy. It's not a question of... If you know your enemy, it's one thing. But it, it is based on a simple rule that was taught for, I think, about 20 years... Uh, in the British Army Intelligence Corps. It was not so much know your enemy, but it's know what your enemy is going to do. And that was the thing that you never really got to, to, to grip with. Rather than know why your enemy's doing it, which why, is what Roger's that suggesting, was the, yeah. yeah. And you see, the, the whole concept, and I know that, um, I know that you'd, sort of, you'd look at organisations like Quilliam who have sort of said, we've got to understand radicalisation, why young men, for example. You know, you were saying you're not born a terrorist, but you might be born into a terrorist organisation, but uh, you might be born into a terrorist family of a terrorist region, you may feel oppressed. I'll give you one, one perfect example, I think, that was, that was put forward recently at a, at, a, at a conference on terrorism. And that is that you have, and this was about uh, Islamic terrorism, and he said you have uh, everything that Islam has given to the world, not just the Western world, to the world, uh, the great pieces of science and art and literature, and yet very young men, uh, perhaps well-educated, perhaps out of a job, all those sort of things which have become radicalised. Look at the people in the Western world who every creed they have suggests the people in the Western world are wrong, and yet these are the people that bought thing, people on the moon. These are the people that have got NASA. These are the people who have got Wall Street, etc. And that makes them angry. And simple anger, together with uh, hopelessness, 
and no actually line of where their futures lie can cause terrorism. And that is just one tiny way of doing it. Roger, yeah. I, I also wonder whether your conclusions can apply both post-fact as well as pre-fact. In other words, in the search for a political solution, having been in a fight and you're trying to get a political solution to what's going on in Afghanistan, is this understanding crucial in delivering that? Well, uh, I think if you look at the history of successful attempts, and there have been one or two with negotiating with terrorists, one of the crucial factors in it is there have been one or two idealists in there who refuse to demonise the enemy. I mean, we've, we've got to remember that we are... When you're up against terrorism, you're up against people who have demonised you. I mean, in other words, you are you are part of of this this mass of humanity that they've, as it were, written off as as, as evil or whatever. Um, but it is absolutely crucial that they are treated as human beings because we we are, as it were, upholding a whole set of values based on humanism, and we have to negotiate with people as if they are not and even treat them in prisons, etc., as if they are not themselves demonised. And that does actually in, in, bring a different sort of mindset to, to negotiations and to looking for the, the social factor and the, to actually understand what the anger is and what sort of issues can actually be uh, sh shifted on in concrete terms, which might, even if it doesn't deal with the, the extreme fanatics, uh, help to take away some of the base... Uh, of, of support for them. So I do actually think it has a general application. OK, well, thank you very much for your time today. Roger Griffin, author thank of Terrorists' much. Creed. Next to Cyprus, where the last remaining permanent military hospital has closed. TPMH, or to give it its full name, the Princess Mary's Hospital at RAF Akrotiri, has shut up shop after 50 years. Tim Cooper reports. As of 8am local time this morning, the Princess Mary's Hospital passed into history. The last patients have been discharged and the packing up has started. Much of the building was mothballed years ago, as the facilities here contracted from a 200-bed hospital to, in its end, one set up for just 25 patients. For the last few staff, it's been a tough task, keeping going till the end. His nursing officer, Flight Lieutenant Paul Evans. It's been very bittersweet. As the days draw nearer and nearer, it's been quite a sad and emotional time when you know you've got to pack up, but you've still got to keep going at the same time. Set on a promontory on the edge of RAF Akrotiri, TPMH first opened for business in 1963. Then, of course, the British military operation in Cyprus was considerably larger and the hospital catered for the 15 to 20,000 personnel stationed here. From the late 90s onwards, numbers were much lower and TPMH contracted to reflect this. Ultimately, it had become unviable, if you like a city-sized facility serving a village-sized population. Various ideas to keep it running were mooted, including flying in military from the UK to circumvent the waiting lists of the NHS, but ultimately to no avail. Commander British Forces Cyprus's Air Vice Marshal Graham Stacey. It's done a great job. It's looked after our people extremely well. Um, but the construct of a, a cottage hospital within the, the military um, medical network um, is just no longer viable. Um, we have to change. Medical necessity also contributed to the hospital's closure. Clinicians need a certain throughput of patients in order to keep their skills up to speed, and that was proving hard to achieve here. Last commanding officer of TPMH is Group Captain Gordon Allison. The caseload here was falling, and it became increasingly difficult to maintain appropriate levels of competence, and therefore the MOD found it necessary to look at other ways of providing secondary health care.
From today, military personnel and their dependents will receive hospital care at the Polyclinic, a private facility in Limassol. The care at the clinic is UK accredited and will be closely monitored by British Forces medical personnel. Dr Christos Vialis is medical coordinator of the Polyclinic. We are going to give the same type of care that everybody else on the island receives when they come through our doors. And that's the best care that we can possibly provide. Group Captain Allison again. I think ultimately it's going to be excellent, but there'll be some ups and downs as we uh, proceed with the business. At RAF Akrotiri, there's immense sadness at the passing of TPMH. It's been an iconic part of British forces Cyprus, generations of sailors, soldiers and airmen using the facility. Colonel David Vassallo has been researching the history of the hospital. The hospital started off as a result of British forces moving out of Egypt and it was a temporary hospital and for five years with the increasing number they had to build this particular uh, hospital over here. With the decision to close permanent military hospitals across the forces world, TPMH's fate was sealed but it remained long enough to be the last man standing in military hospital terms. But now like Hasler in Gosport, Wegberg in Germany, Bowen Road in Hong Kong, it'll be consigned to history. Tim Cooper reporting from Cyprus. Now finally this week a campaign is being launched to save hundreds of neglected graves of people who received the Victoria Cross. The Conservative think tank The Bow Group wants to make the maintenance of the graves a legal requirement and for them to have the same status as listed buildings. Well joining us now is Ben Harris-Quinney who is chairman of The Bow Group. Uh, Mr Quinney how many uh, graves are we talking about here? Well we're potentially talking about as many as uh, 1,300 graves worldwide um already 300 are maintained um but they're not really maintained well enough um in the opinion of the of the victoria cross trust and the bow group and we think that needs to be extended to all graves of the recipients of the victoria cross and indeed the george cross as well so who are you saying should should actually pick up the 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 tab for looking after these graves well we feel that the cost should be underwritten by the government because although um, being a recipient um, of, of, of the VC or the George Cross is a very personal thing and um, we think is also of historical relevance to the country as well um, however we feel that it's likely if the government is willing to simply underwrite the cost um, that the sort of monies we're talking about required to maintain these graves will be relatively easily obtained by charitable donations. I think the figure is probably something in the region of half a million pounds. I mean, in a, in a sense, particularly as we, we come up to Remembrance Sunday, I think a lot of people will be su- surprised to hear that a- actually we're in a position where these graves have been able to fall into neglect. Well, I think that's absolutely right. And it's not just that the graves themselves have fallen into neglect. It's that often local communities um, are not aware that actually w- within their own communities they hold... Um, the grave and the memorial to someone who has been awarded with the the VC medal. Um, Many people are aware of that, uh, many communities are aware, and indeed I was in Oxford recently where uh, Noel Chavas was, was, has, has been awarded with a, with a blue plaque at his school to, to memorialise um, his achievement in actually winning two Victoria Crosses. But um, I, I think this is, you know, this is a, a cause for celebration for the local community, for local historical societies, and uh, local schools, community institutions. I think everyone should be aware, um, both locally and, and nationwide, of, of the people that have achieved this this great military honour. And, and you you mention local communities a lot there. Given that actually we're, you know, short of money as a country, should, shouldn't this be part of uh, the big society, as it's been called? Well, the problem with 
Um, I, I think as much as possible, yes, it should. But the problem with just leaving it to the big society is that um, you, you might get a very well-maintained grave in one area and a not-so-well-maintained grave or, or set of graves in, in another. And so by having this uh, national programme to underwrite the cost, it means that the government guarantees a minimum level of maintenance across the entire nation. But I should say, however, that the VC Trust is probably an example of the of the big society it was uh, set up by an individual without government support um, purely out of his own personal passion and conviction for the issue christopher briefly do you, do you think government might be prepared to to put money into something like this um government always says no at first and says other people should be doing this sort of thing it depends how much pressure i mean there's one 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 thing i've heard for example a suggestion of a vc memorial wall but then should you have a dso memorial wall uh, uh, the great image of graves is in the closing shots of Oh, What a Lovely War, because they represented the hopelessness of war, didn't they, as seen by the public. That is the answer. Ask the next generation. And ju just briefly before we go, Mr Harris, Quinny, there are also unmarked Victoria Cross graves. What briefly would you like to happen to those? Well, as I said um, when, when, I, when I first began speaking on the issue, I, I think... It is important to recognise that this is a, a very personal issue for the recipients of the awards and their families. And so it may well be that um, those recipients and their families don't actually want to have that memorial maintained by another body. And I think that's, that's quite acceptable and fine. But where there is no um, opposition to, to a memorial being maintained or indeed um, erected, um, I think it absolutely should be done. Okay, Ben Harris Quinney from the Bow Group. Thank you very much indeed thank you. for your time on the programme. Uh, just before we go, uh, Christopher, one to watch for next week. Yeah, the um, the Chinese have launched their new, their first uh, J thirty one, which is a stealth fighter. A uh, couple of weeks ago, they were launching their first aircraft carrier. The they two are, are not connected. Moves. But watch that space in China. Well, thanks for your time and to all our contributors this week. Do keep your comments coming on Twitter. We are at BFBS SITREP and you can join us again next week. But for now, from me, James Hurst, goodbye. Time for PM with Eddie Mayer.